Hello, welcome to the 10-7 podcast, where we bring the science of emergency medicine to the day-to-day life on the truck. So sit back, relax, and join us for our conversations. Welcome back to the 10-7 podcast. I know that it's been a few years since we put out an episode, but we're finally bringing it back. Um, I'm Hunter Shifley. I'm a critical care paramedic, and today I'm here with Andrew Gist, who's one of my coworkers, and he's also a paramedic. Hello. Good evening. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go ahead and get our legal disclaimer out of the way. Uh, the viewpoints and opinions expressed in this podcast are of the 10-7 podcast alone. They are not meant to supersede your local and or service protocols and guidelines. Okay. So, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and intro what we're going to talk about today in the article. Uh, today we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite drug, at least EMS's favorite drug, ketamine, which I have not really had the uh, pleasure of using on any calls yet, but <laughs> one day. One day, you know. Yeah, one day. But um, today, specifically, we're going to be talking about its implication in status patients or status epilepticus. Um, there's not a, there's not a ton of studies out there, um, for this specific, well, there's, there's obviously studies for using in status, but, um, we'll get to the specifics later, but, um, we're going to be going over the specific case study called, uh, refractory and super refractory status and evidence for the use of ketamine. It was conducted by uh, Dr. Luis Espinoza, Dr. Mario Gomez, Dr. Adrian Zamora, and Dr. Daniel Milano Franco. I apologize for any um, <laughs> potential butchering of names. Yeah. But um, that epilepticus is a hard word to say. Yep. Yeah, we're going to be saying <laughs> status, that's for sure. Yep. Okay. So let's go over the case uh, now that we have it introduced. Uh, we need we need to understand that this is not an RCT. All right, we know that RCT is the best form of evidence that you can use in medicine. Right, the double blind RCT, most widely accepted. That's most widely accepted for yeah, sure. That's the standard. Um, but here's the thing: there are essentially none, zero, zip, zip, zilch, uh, randomized control trials on ketamine particularly in status patients. Um, I'm not sure why that is, but it is what it is. Money. Yeah, Uh, I don't know. (laughs) You know, it might be. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Anyway, so we just need to recognize that um, the the validity of this trial, its case studies, and its its evidence is um, retrospective, and it's not confirming 100% scientifically you know we don't have p-values we don't have things like that Um, but it's something to start think get us thinking we need to start thinking critically and i think this paper does a good job of that and it introduces an idea that i wasn't familiar with and brings up a good point that we could start using it for Um, so the case the meta-analysis rather was uh done and they reviewed a database where they had 1535 records to pull from of that, uh, 1,497 of those records were excluded. Um, wasted, si- you could say. Yeah, wasted. They were wasted <laughs> down the sink. Uh, for one reason or another. 
so that left them with 68 reports that they had to pull from uh, out of the original database. Um, out of that 68, 38 were only reviewed. Only 38 were reviewed. Um, the reason that the rest weren't reviewed was because six were ineligible due to population. Um, six were mm. abstract only, and six were duplicates. The dates of publication for these case studies range from 1990 to 2022. That's a long time. A long time. Um, Medicine changed so much. Oh, yeah. I mean, it can change tomorrow. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it will. It will. But so basically the result of this meta-analysis showed that ketamine is a third-line drug after benzos and anticonvulsants is effective in controlling RSE um, or refractory status. So those status patients that the benzos aren't working, the Keppra's not working. They've been taking their medicine for years, and right. it's not working anymore. There's no alcohol on board, stuff like that, right? Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Even if there is, they, we know those patients are going to seize, and they're going to seize like crazy. Yep. Um, but, Andrew, I'll hand it over to you if you want to talk a little bit about the pathophys of RSE. Sure, I'll stumble through this. Um, so, once a patient has reached the point of status... Um, or they've been seizing for five minutes or more, or they haven't returned to a baseline within five minutes. It's not 30 minutes anymore? It's not 30 minutes anymore. <laughs> Thankfully, it's not 30 minutes anymore. Um, but uh, yes, once, um, once they've reached the point of status, the cell membrane experiences a decrease in GABA receptors and an increase in excitatory receptors um so the the well the, specifically the um excitatory receptors of m n m d a the receptor that likes to put glutamate in the two the neurons or the neuro cells um the Status qualifications in um, status epileptic refractory to uh, first-line treatments such as benzos. Um, so excitotoxicity is characterized by uh, neurological death and induced by excessive release of glutamate over an act activation of its receptors. So... Obviously, just summarizing it, just uh, if there's too much glutamate in the the exciter glutamate, if there's too much of it in the cell for too long, it can cause cell death. Hence, why they stopped waiting 30 minutes and changed it to five. You know, what's a 30 minute seizure? Yeah, it's basically putting your brain in an oven. But <laughs> yeah, thankfully they changed that. But. Um, so, um, too much glutamate in the cell can cause um, an increase in calcium, uh, the increase of calcium concentrations and promotes uh, lipid peroxidation of the cytoplasmic membrane, endoplasmic uh, reticul reticulum, and mitochondria causing cell death. Right. Now, a little about the about the NMDA receptors. The NMDA stands for N-methyl D-aspartate. Um, not that that's super important for us pre-hospital folks to to know, 
but we need to recognize NMDA, okay? Those receptors belong to a family of, a family of receptors called inotropic receptors, um, and these receptors are coupled to an ion channel, which allow the entry of various ions and mainly calcium, okay? Now, the places in which they do that are the places we just talked about, you know, your cytoplasmic membrane, your endoplasmic reticulum, and the mitochondria, all right? Which is why it goes along with causing that cell death from RSE, right? Yeah. Uh, That's how it can affect those. Ketamine doesn't affect the GABA receptors on that cell, does it? It's no. Just, it's nope. just NMDA. It's an NMDA antagonist. Yeah. No, okay. The locations of these receptors are located in the medullary, thalamic, limbic, and cortical levels, um, some of the locations of those. Uh, now, ketamine, it is, an, like we just said, an NMDA antagonist. It particularly targets the regions that we just talked about, the medullary, thalamic, limbic, and cortical levels. Um, but it does this, and it gives the medication the name disassociative anesthetic because it interferes with the sensory afferent flow to the central nervous system's higher centers, affecting pain, emotional response, and memory. So basically, the body still could be receiving pain, mm -hmm. but it doesn't realize that it is receiving pain. Right, 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 right. Um, so, yeah, it's not going to block the, the nerve signals, right? Yeah. Saying, oh, you're hurting. It's but, not an opioid. Right, but it's not an opioid. Um, but that's where we get... We're able to use this on excited delirium patients, you know, those patients who are just kicking our tail in the back um, out of their mind. It's that dissociative aspect of the medication which allows us to do that. And what the ability to do that with the ketamine also doesn't take away their airway, right? Their the breathing center of the brain. It doesn't knock out their, their respiratory drive. No, it's not going to cause apnea. Right. Um, they may be drooling. To beat the band, but uh, you, know. you know, we got a solution for that, <laughs> which we will get into later. Okay, um, ketamine also has this uh, some effect on opioid receptors. Um, like we just said, it's not an opioid, um, and it's not going to trigger a response like an opioid would from the opioid receptors. But it does have the ability to bind to them. Okay, some studies have shown that ketamine can affect different areas of the brain differently. But the administration uh, of ketamine has been shown to increase the amount of presynapse glutamine, but lowers the extracellular glutamate. Glut ooh, glutamate, sorry. Um, might seem like a nitpicky difference between the glutamine and glutamate, but it's a difference that we need to know because that glutamate is what's causing the cell death, right? Allowing the calcium to get into the cells at too high levels. Um, but... Uh, this study that I'm referencing, talking about the glutamine and glutamate, um, suggests that ketamine interferes with the TCA cycle, um, which is what converts glutamine to glutamate. And there was also another article I found published in Molecular Psychiatry. It's, late, it's titled, Ketamine decreases neuronally released glutamate via the retrograde stimulation of presynaptic adenosine A1 receptors. Uh, I have been unable to link the correlation of the adenosine A1 receptor to the TCA cycle, but I don't know. It might have something to do with that. It might not. It might be something completely separate. Um, 
Yeah, the the only the only thing I know about um, adenosine is that it, it they think that um, epileptic patients have a low amount of adenosine that's causing their seizures, and I I don't know how that links with the TCA cycle at all. Gotcha. Um, either way, regardless, uh, that's what ketamine does. Is it affects the adenosine A1 receptors in the presynapse regions of the neurons and the axons, okay? Now, ketamine is derived from the same cyclohexenes as PCP. You know, yeah, it's like basically old, the same shape, isn't it, molecularly? It's very similar. So that's why it's... It, the, ketamine is also a cyclohexene. Um, but it just reminds me, it's so crazy because... I just thought about this. In, in high school physics, my professor, or yeah. my teacher, he'd always, like, let's say we were talking about an angle going uphill, pushing something uphill, and it was some astronomically huge weight boulder, and he'd draw yeah. a little stick figure on the board, pushing it up. He's like, we're going to assume this guy's on PCP. <laughs> uh, and I don't necessarily put the two together with ketamine, because ketamine, you know, knocks people out. Yeah. You know? Um, but it's, it's a similar structure molecularly. Yeah. Um, both derived from cyclohexenes. I would just say he's on Flocka. Yeah, Flocka. Flocka oh, exists anymore? I don't know if it's still around or not, but... Was it ever real? Oh. We'll get back to that. Maybe it'll be another <laughs> podcast. Oh, it was real. I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, ketamine has a 10 to 30% plasma protein binding ability, um, which is important when we administrate it because we need to start thinking about, you know other medications and things that like for example let, the perfect example we give a patient versed um that has don't quote me here i think it's 60 percent. let me look but either way the importance of the plasma protein binding is because if the medication is bound to that albumin which is the primary plasma protein um it's not available for the body to use, right? So we need to be cognizant of that. But the ketamine only has a 10 to 30%. So that means 10 to 30% of what you give is going to be browned, uh, bound to the albumin and the plasma proteins. Does that... Oh, no. Midazolam has a highly bound, not greater than 96% plasma protein. Okay. So it's really attracted to those pr albumin and proteins. So does that... Does that like correlate with his efficacy? Yeah. So, um, not so. Let's say you gave ketamine, and then you give midazolam. Yeah. There is going to be what's going to happen is there's only so many seats on that albumin, and that midazolam has a higher affinity for it, so it's going to kick that ketamine or any medication they take daily mm -hmm. off of that albumin and take its seat. It's going to take over. Right. Okay. Um, which means there's more medication of, like, let's say you gave ketamine. There's going to be more ketamine available to the body uh, than there would have been before you gave the midazolam, right? Yeah. Um, what's, the, what's the protein binding of Valium? I'm not sure. I know fentanyl's pretty high as well, um, and that's kind of yeah. where you get into the thick of it with the plasma protein binding is if you give two medications that are, that are very, have a very high plasma protein binding ability. Yeah. Because you're going to potentiate the other one. That's where we're getting the potentiations of medications. Gotcha. Um, 
you know, you give the you give the Versed stop seizure, and then you give some fentanyl, which is also high. It's going to kick some of that Versed off of its seat, but it's okay. also not going to fill the seats completely. Yeah. So now you have more than you anticipated of the fentanyl and the Versed available for the body to use. Right. <clears throat> so that's that's something to think about. Now, ketamine, like I said, it's ten to thirty percent. It's pretty low, actually, really low. Um, plasma protein binding ability but you got to think about what other medications you've given and what other medications the patient takes every day right and if they're actually taking it and if they're actually taking it you know compliance is 100 percent out here in the streets and if they're not drinking with it right <laughs> yeah alcohol helps everything right well <laughs> lowers your seizure threshold can't do any harm um but anyway um Ketamine converted. Ketamine is converted to norketamine in approximately two to three minutes, and it reaches peak conversion at approximately thirty minutes. So right. why does that matter? So now, does that I think that happens in the liver, right? I think it's probably oh, sure. in the liver. Um, that might be where it's metabolized, yeah, but that's, that it's converted. Sense. That's so. The effects of ketamine are actually the effects of norketamine, right? right. So you're not going to get any effects until that ketamine is converted into the norketamine. Um, and I believe that was IV administration, Probably. but either way, that has to be tr- that has to be converted into norketamine. Now, why is that important that it has to be converted once we administer it? Because benzodiazepines have the ability to prevent ketamine's D or N demethylation, and what that does is the N demethylation is what turns it into norketamine. Right? It takes off a methyl group from the ketamine, and that turns it into norketamine. Um, But benzodiazepines can prevent that from happening. And what's the one thing we're giving on all seizure patients, especially status patients? Lots and lots of benzos. Benzodiazepines, Um, something to keep in mind. Now, there does need to be a cautionary note. Uh, Ketamine is not harmless, but it is pretty useful. Um, But ketamine can prevent norepinephrine and other catecholamines reuptake, right? So it's not necessarily important for seizures, but in other uses of ketamine, we have to be careful because let's say you have a septic patient whose who's catecholamines are already in the tank, they're decompensating, and their blood pressure's 70 over 40, right? And you, they're unresponsive and you have to tube them for one reason or another. You have to RSI them. Um, that ketamine can actually lower the blood pressure. You're not going to get that stereotypical bump in blood pressure that you get with the ketamine because ketamine does release catecholamines, which is why we get that bump in blood pressure. But what it also does is prevent the reuptake of them. Mm-hmm. So if their stores are already, you know, Go towards on. the toilet, yeah, you're just going to flush it down the toilet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because they're not getting anything back. So um, the, the plasma protein binding of Valium is 98%. 98%. Yeah. I know benzos are really high. Um, yeah. But so it's just something to keep in mind with that. Yeah. Um, now, why, why is this article that we're covering important? How is it applicable to us on the truck or, you know, in the helicopter? If you're in a helicopter, how is it applicable to us? Well, at least at our service, and I think it's the appropriate intervention. Um, 
we RSI status patients. Not because we think that we're stopping the seizure, because we're not. There's, we're not stopping the seizure by sedating, paralyzing, and intubating these patients. But what we are doing is controlling their airway. Because once we get them in the back of our truck, our job is to try and fix them. And if we can't fix them, minimize the damage, mm-hmm. right? And one thing that can go wrong with these status patients is aspiration. They vomit. Their secretions build up. And that may not kill them right away, but they're going to get aspiration pneumonia and make it even harder. Now their doctors are having to treat the aspiration pneumonia and the seizures. Now you're having to write into your report why you didn't tube them. Right, right. Um, Justify why you decided not to take their airway. Um, That's like pretty much our number one job is to control an airway, right? (laughs) Right. Breathing. Breathing. (laughs) Breathing airway circulation. That's Anyway. ABCs, BAC, whatever yeah. you want to do. It's in there. Breathing's in there. Airway's in there. Yeah. Um, but that's why I, wanna, I wanted to talk about this is because we can use it for induction and continued sedation, right? Um, we have a dose of 1 to 2 milligrams per kilo for induction, IV or IM. Mm-hmm. I prefer IV because it's faster onset. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, you're getting the dissociative anesthetics of ketamine, that, that twilight sedation, that... Uh, where they're not going to remember the tube, they're not going to be fighting you. Um, but it it also takes care of analgesia, their pain, because intubation is painful. Mm-hmm. And then also, if we look at this paper, we could also be stopping the seizures, or at least attempting to stop the seizures, because we know if they're at the point where we've given the benzos, they didn't stop the seizure, or they stopped the seizure, but the patient's still postictal, right? Because those are the qualifications for status. Yeah. Longer than five minutes, didn't return to baseline, all that stuff. Yeah. So now we're controlling induction sedation, and we're doing analgesia, and we have the possibility of stopping these seizures. And if their catecholamines are at a normal level, right. you're increasing their blood pressure we're after all the benzos you just dumped into Right, because the benzos are going to make them hypotensive, yeah. potentially. Um, it, yeah, I mean, but it's... They, they can potentially work hand-in-hand. Hand. Right. It's right. almost like you're killing two birds with one stone. Right. Um, and so I just think it's something to keep in mind um, that we can use. It's a tool in our toolkit, right? Um, That's a tool in your toolkit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. but For now. But, for now. Um, yeah. But, yeah, you can use it for induction. You can use it for continued... Now, the only caveat to this is the paralytic that you're giving for induction, right? Um, Our service, paramedics, have to use succinylcholine. Um, Now, that has a duration that's short, like, what, 8 to 10 minutes, 12 minutes, something like that. Which is, that's why we use it. Right, right. Um, But the ketamine's going to last longer than that. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So you got to be careful of that. Significantly longer. Be paying attention. Be paying attention to those patients. Mm-hmm. I think the half-life, we looked it up, uh, was two and a half hours. Yeah, I think it was what Something you, like that. Um, two and a half hours versus, what, eight minutes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you got to be capable of getting that tube, getting that tube first attempt, yeah. right? And doing everything we can to 
better our chances of first pass success. Um, I prefer to use VEC or ROC for induction, but if you're at the paramedic certification at our service, you have to use sucks, right? Yep. So it's just something to keep in mind. You need to watch your patient. They might still be sedated, but that paralytic may have worn off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it may be something that you need to address. Now, the study, a lot of the case studies that were mentioned in this article did include a bolus, but they also were mainly focused on uh, infusions, mm-hmm. ketamine infusions, right? And that's after your benzodiazepines, after your Kepra that we don't carry, um, that I don't think most ground trucks carry Kepra, right? Um, so after your benzos, mm-hmm. doing the infusion, um, that's something to be considered as well. Um, there's nothing wrong with an infusion. It'd be great if you had a pump. If you don't, use a dial flow. You definitely probably shouldn't be doing a gravity drip of ketamine. Yeah, that's no, how you imagine <laughs> most, uh, most ground What's units. going on? Oh, man. Yeah, like, yeah that's... Um, can imagine that any ground paramedic listening to this is like, come on, man, we don't have the money for pumps. Yeah, pumps. What are those? That'd be great. Um, That'd be cool. If we could get a pump, we're already at the hospital. Yeah. Baxter um, pump, if you're out there, you know, you <laughs> make a nice little pump that we could use on a truck, hit us up. Yeah. Um, but there are some side effects of ketamine that we need to talk about again. Um, ketamine can cause increased mucus production, right? You get that extra salivation. If you've ever used it for excited delirium and you've driven to the hospital, you know the patient's going to be sitting there and they have, have you ever had them drooling, falling out of their mouth? You yeah. know what I mean? That's something to be aware of. But also, you're tubing them with socks and ketamine. Right. For, you know, yeah. that's... Yeah. There's going to be spit all over the place. <laughs> Salad technique all day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, you can get laryngospasms with ketamine. Now, I did watch a video... Um, I forget the physician's name. If I find it, uh, I'll put it in the notes. But the physician was talking about laryngospasms from ketamine, and he said that there was a point right at the, like, mandible, the joint of the mandible, a little bit further back under mm-hmm. the ear. You put pressure, and you rotate your finger. It can release that laryngospasm. It's almost like a trigger point. Yeah. Um, he showed a video with a uh, McGrath, King McGrath, McGrath or King Vision or some video laryngoscope yeah. of the, the vocal cords, and you could see the laryngospasms. They yeah. were, you weren't getting that tubed. Um, and then he performed that maneuver up here by the joint of the mandible under the ear, and you could immediately watch it just relax, and he was able to pass the tube. Um, it was very effective, and that's something else to keep in, keep in mind uh, that could happen. Yeah, the things you learn in med school. Yeah, right. Um, there was one more. There's another way to reduce spasms? No, not spasms. Um, Nebulized lidocaine. Nebulized, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll do the trick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> gosh. Um, it doesn't... Oh, um, I don't think we mentioned it. Ketamine was thought of to significantly increase ICP and oh, studies yeah. are kind of showing so that it's not quite as 
bad as we thought. Right. So what happened was, from my understanding, um, ketamine used to cause such a massive catecholamine dump that it would increase ICP, right? Because ICP is your MAP minus your cerebral perfusion pressure. And so if you increase your MAP, your cerebral perfusion pressure doesn't change. You're increasing your ICP, right? right? So they reformulated it, and that's not as big of a deal now. It still happens. I still see the patient get a little hypertensive with ketamine, um, but I don't think it's as bad as it used to be. It's kind of like amiodarone, how they used to talk about the hypotension that it caused, yeah. and they reformulated it, and it doesn't cause it as severely now. Um, Medicine changed again. All right. But um, ideally, if we're using this the way we're supposed to, then hopefully their blood pressure is a little... Not on the lower side, but... Well, I mean, you're already going to have given those benzos. um, And, you know... It's bound to come down a little bit. You never know how many doses the person's gotten. You don't know if they took their medicine that day. Right, they may be on Valium. They may be on some type of uh, anti-seizure medication. But it's just something to keep in mind. That it can... It will increase the blood pressure. Um... Do you have anything else you want to say about ketamine and RSC? Uh, no, I wish I could play with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, seems like a one day. fantastic drug. Yeah, one day. One day. Definitely. Um, but this, Definitely. again, it was just to get us to start thinking critically, right? Yeah. Um, this is by no means saying go out here and use this on every patient. You, you better do this or else. Um, that's not what this is saying. This is just a, a, a study that or a meta-analysis that just gives us a little bit more insight to the possible usage of ketamine and my argument for its use in RSI and our status patients. Um, Potentially could be more efficient. Right. Three birds, one stone, right? Yeah, if we can avoid turning their blood into just this, you know, medicine soup of, you know, it's... Overall, it's just better for your patient. Yeah, better for your patient. And that's what we're here for. We're just here to start getting us to think critically and to do better for our patients. And like I said, if we can't, if we can't fix whatever's going on, we minimize the damage and get them to the hospital, and that's our job, right? Yeah. Ultimately, we'd like to fix it, but obviously, oftentimes there's things we are limited to on the truck, and we can't fix it. But what we can do is minimize the damage that occurs. Yeah. Um, it's nice to think that we could potentially have another tool towards that. Right. Um, I remember, I remember working as status kid, and we called to the the only pediatric ER we've got for med control, and said, "All right, we max them out on benzos. Um, they're controlling their airway for right now. What else can we do? I've got Versed, Valium. They're like Capra. I'm like, mm-hmm, okay, we've got yeah. Ativan, Versed, and Valium. Right. What do you want us to do? They're like, ah. Uh, uh, Kepra, I don't think uh, you're hearing me. Like, uh, no, no Kepra. There is no Kepra anywhere <laughs> here. So uh, they basically said, yeah, just drive faster. Yeah, yeah. I don't blame them. Right. I mean, the they had they had kind of talked about, well, if you if you have to give Versed, I guess you can, but prefer not to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it'd be. It'd be nice to have had ketamine as a potential oh, yeah. second or third line. Pediatrics would be second line, yeah. I guess. But that reminded me of another one that the seizure patient I ran that I gave I innovated status patient and uh, 
one of the side effects. The side effect I was trying to remember, um, the seizure-like activity. Ah, yes. Yeah. Um, so when you give that, that's a possibility. Um, kind of freaks you out, you know. You just gave it to RSI, a status patient, and you gave paralytics with it, and now, for some reason, they're shaking. Yeah. It's like, like, what do I do? It's another flavor of pseudo seizure. Yeah. <laughs> do I give more benzos? Do I give more ketamine? What What do I do here? Um, you give them to a doctor. Give oh. them to a doctor. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what I did, man. Yeah. I was in the ambulance bay. I, I'm like, well, this is what's happening. <laughs> Like, I don't get paid enough to deal with this. Here you go, Doc. Good luck. I gave them everything. Right. So. And then this happened. And now they're, now they're shivering. Now they're shivering. Um, but yeah. Well, that was just a side effect of ketamine, yeah, right? That's, yeah, I looked it up afterwards, and that's a possible side effect yeah. of the ketamine. Um, just to be aware of. But I think that just about does it for this episode. Um, I appreciate everybody listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, corrections on anything we said, uh, let us know. Uh, also, I'm not going to be limiting this podcast to randomized control trials or meta-analysis any, anymore. Uh, if you have a case study or you just ran a cool call and you want to talk about it, let me know and we'll get you on. Um, if you have an idea of what you want to hear for the next episode, let me know. But other than that, I appreciate you guys listening, and y'all take care.